Hello there, this is Fiona, host and main GM for What Am I Rolling, a twice-monthly RPG one-shot podcast. This is a bonus Q&A episode to tide us over to the next one-shot, and it is indeed a very special Q&A, as a few weeks back I interviewed Zach Cox, the head writer of Soul Muppet Publishing. Soul Muppet Publishing is best known for the fantasy horror RPG Best Left Buried, a game that threatens characters' sanities as much as their lives. Within the crypt, adventurers are beset by strange monsters, bizarre environments, and eldritch magics, which will take them on their journey from fresh-faced recruits to grizzled survivors. I really enjoy reading this RPG through and playing in a playtest not so long ago, and I'm hoping to record a one-shot using Best Left Buried very soon, so keep an eye out for that. If you want to find out more about Soul Muppet Publishing, be sure to check out their Facebook page. That's www.facebook.com forward slash soul muppet. That's all one word and spelt S-O-U-L-M-U-P-P-E-T. I'll put links to the Soul Muppet Facebook page, their work and recommendations on the What Am I Rolling website and in this episode's show notes. So I guess we'll just start off with the simple question is like, who are you and what do you do? My name's Zach. I am the manager or writer, content creator behind a partnership called Soul Mapper Publishing, where I work with a couple of other people to make role-playing games and role-playing game-related supplements. The game that is sort of the big thing at the moment for us is this game called Best Left Buried, which is like a fantasy horror role-playing game. We also make other products. We've got a couple of monster zines in production at the moment one that's gone out already my partner sash who's one of the other people in the company is making a wizard creation book so yeah it's just all about making the cool little indie rpgs and then uh seeing where it goes from there and what was it that made you want to write your own rpgs it's not something you do every day (laughs) yeah so it was a bit weird to be honest i always i really don't like telling the story because it always seems really negative but uh i (laughs) First role-playing game I ever played, I played a hell of a lot of D&D 5th Edition, which is a really great game, and I love it, and I wouldn't trade those hours I spent playing it for anything else. But I just had lots of, like, niggling problems with it that I was like, oh, I could fix this if I just did this. Mm -hmm. And sort of stuff like I felt the game was too easy, I thought it was too complicated, which is a a weird combination to have. (laughs) rules. There wasn't enough, like, risk in it. Characters didn't die often enough. There was a lack of consequence in that if you kind of sleep for eight hours in a game of D&D, then all of your injuries are just healed. And also, all of my players knew the game better than I did. (laughs) So uh, it was really hard to run the kind of games that I wanted to run using that game. Mm -hmm. So there was this moment where uh, one of my players corrected me on the saving throw of an Abaleth. Like, it was like, yeah, it's DC 14, but he rolled a 15. He should have failed that check or something like that. Ooh. And uh, it was just a really jarring moment for me. And I was like, you know what? I should just make my own game. Come up with all these problems. I tried to, like, build it all out of 5th edition. Like, all these rules I should drop and change. And the thing I was trying to make, I realized, was just so divorced from what that game was that I thought I just designed my own from scratch. And the goal was to cut it down as well to the point where... It's like one short book compared to 
you know, a thousand pages or something, which is what some role playing games end up as. And that was mm. too complicated for me. It felt like you were reading a technical manual, not something that was actually <laughs> fun to read and to play. That's why I wanted to write my own RPGs because the ones I was playing, and I played a lot of them, mm-hmm. were kind of not exactly what I wanted. And I think that's a real uh, thing that with role playing games, it's really easy just to make your own thing, mm-hmm. you know? D&D as well, for me, was my first game as well. And what I do find about it, when you talk about it to other people, they're, they're always like, where do you start? And obviously it's quite hard when, you know, you say, oh, well, you can use this book, but then it's 300 pages long and then you've got all these different books on top of it, which you could use. And the same with Pathfinder as well. There's just so much to it. Whereas if you know exactly what you want from a game, it's great to create your own. Like I was reading through the book today and I love how your first line is like, there's a joke going around and everyone has their own fantasy heartbreaker and this is ours. And I love that idea of a fantasy heartbreaker. And I've actually reading through your whole book, all the sort of terminology you use like the crypt and crypt diggers, that little sort of tint saying that this is not your normal RPG game. And I really like that. Yeah. So I actually, I actually really don't like fantasy heartbreaker as a term. Oh, really? <laughs> I included that in the first printing and I felt it was like too iconic to take it away. Mm. But I think that sort of there's, it was that term sort of arose in the nineties where everyone, Dungeons and Dragons was taking that big shift away from the sort of TSR era, basic D&D that everyone liked and becoming its own sort of AD&D-esque beast, which is lots of like RPG history. And people were trying to write their own game. And it was sort of, you say, yeah, this game isn't real. It's just a fantasy heartbreaker. And the reason it's a heartbreaker is because the people would buy it. They'd print a thousand copies and they'd all just sit in their basements with their hearts broken, you know, because no one would buy it. But at the same time, I think it's like, because of where the RPG market is at the moment, Mm -hmm. with kind of Kickstarter and the fact that PDF web stores exist now, you can kind of make games without needing like big supply lines and thousands of buyers. It's very much like a creator's Mm. market right now. It's so indie. So yeah, it's really easy to make a game. And I think that that's why I did it Mm -hmm. because, you know, and I think there's like lots of ideas in there as well. And sort of some of the stuff you're talking about, the language, it's about making a game that kind of has as much flavor in it as possible Mm -hmm. within as few words. And if those words are also mechanics, Mm -hmm. then that's even better because you know, what you will sort of get with a lot of role-playing games, and that I'm guilty of this, is that the first page is always like, this is the setting in the dark, <laughs> and fantasy, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. And all that, you know, 7,000 years ago, the elves did this. And it's like, well, yeah, but what does that actually mean for like how the game works? Mm-hmm. So try to, like, a lot of it's about putting lore in like little character bios that you get at the start of abilities, you mm-hmm. know, stuff like that. And that's in a more usable chunk than like chapter 10 being all the stuff where we talk about the history of the Forgotten Realms or whatever. Mm-hmm. So yeah, in, like in making it short, you can cut out all that stuff and shove it in. And there's lots of like ways that you can make a game more approachable and more readable. And mm-hmm. I think that a lot of games like D&D and Pathfinder, you do just suffer from complete option paralysis mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. when you're making a character and you're trying to explain a fifth edition character to someone who's never played D&D before, you sort of have to go, what's the difference between a sorcerer, a wizard, and a warlock? Mm. The idea for a fighter, is he a paladin? Is he a ranger? Is he a fighter? Is he a is he some kind of monk? Or there's one I've missed out, barbarian? You know, there's mm. so many different words. And that's just like in the core rulebook. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so it's about, we've rambled a bit, but there's so <laughs> many like things you can do about how to make games. And I just had all these ideas. And I was like, well, you know who should hear about these ideas? Other people. Yeah. 
Definitely. And that's the that's a weird sort of selfish urge of mine to stand on a box and be read by as many people as I can. <laughs> the thing that at the moment is that the first time that somebody told who I didn't know who they were said, Oh, by the way, I'm running a game of Best Stuff Buried, my mind just exploded. <laughs> yeah. It's like it doesn't exist as a thing until it's not real until someone who isn't you is playing it. Definitely. And not only that like someone's sitting down and decided to run a one shot or something, but like Think how many RPG systems there are. Like, I could probably sit down a pen and paper and name like a hundred, and someone decided to play my game. What would you say is your sort of biggest influences whilst you're writing sort of Best Led Buried, but just in general when you're writing RPGs? I consider myself part of slash adjacent to a school of thought known as the old school renaissance so uh, or the OSR or the old school revolution or like a bunch of old people who like old D&D most of my influences come from that kind of space best left buried like the engine is based on is written by a guy called Ben Milton who runs a YouTube channel called Questing Beast and it's sort of like a one page RPG that runs entirely with D6s and is like the easiest teaching role playing game ever and that was the point where I ran that game. I was like, there's so much here on this page that there's like more rules in here or like more content in here than anything I've read in like the last 1,000 pages. It's like distilled. It's like perfect. That's Maze Rats. It's like three quid on the internet. You should go and buy it. It's really good. That's like my design influence. Sort of the other stuff I really like is there's some really amazing content creation going on right now. My f- ones I'd shout out for are my first, like Patrick Stewart is a, that's Patrick Stewart with a U, not a W. It's not the guy from Star Trek. Generation, <laughs> although we get that a lot. I can imagine. Uh, he writes books like Veins of the Earth, Fire on the Velvet Horizon. It's all sort of like really high concept, like China Mayaville. I know I'm saying that wrong because I've never said these words. Out loud, yeah. I just typed them. Sort of these weird meta narrative creepy books with just like the most beautiful evocative purple prose you've ever written. And then the final game designer here that influenced me the most is really thinks about how I write adventures. Uh, the guy's called uh, Luca Rajek or Wizard Fighter Thief. No, Wizard Thief Fighter. I always say that wrong as well because <laughs> I always type it. He's got a really amazing Patreon, which I think is probably the best Patreon in RPGs at the moment. He's made a couple of books. The Ultraviolet Grasslands, which is a heavy metal-inspired Oregon Trail post-apocalyptic science fantasy point crawl. And if you don't know what those words mean, then you just need to go onto the internet and Google Ultraviolet Grasslands right now and just read that book through. That does sound amazing. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's all the words. It's got a Kickstarter right now that's completely blown up and is doing amazing. Go and look at his stuff. And he's also made some other bits and bobs like uh, Long Winter and Witchburner, which are sort of these quite wintry, horror-based, fantasy 1920s, really compact Slavic fantasy things, which is like, it's so many, there's just more ideas in like one page of that than entire source books written by some people. So mm-hmm. I think that you want to find hashtag OSR and you want to look at all that stuff. And in particular, you want to check out Maze Rats by Ben Milton, Patrick Stewart and anything with his name on it. Uh, Veins of the Earth is my favourite book. And Luca Rajek, Wizard of the Fighter. Those are my biggest influences, I'd say. Can you tell us what is Best Left Buried and sort of what makes it stand out compared to other fantasy horrors? Okay, so I think that every single fantasy RPG that has a dungeon in it should be a horror role-playing game. Dungeons are horrible. 
don't know if you've ever been caving. I wouldn't recommend it. It's pretty grim. Uh, this kind of idea that it's all flat rooms which are made of boxes that are well lit and full of like shiny little goblins that belong in children's television is not what any dungeon would look like dungeons are full of monsters that will kill you they have treasure that usually is good but you don't get very much of it it's dark it's full of scary brutal things every single dungeon that you go into to me in my like heart of hearts should be something like the haunted house that is in a horror movie so I think that even though there are like other RPGs that kind of sit in this brand, I think ones like Torchbearer, Lamentations of the Throne Princess does an okay job of that. There's a lot of sort of weird fantasy stuff that kind of fringes on horror and lots of like pure horror games, stuff like Call of Cthulhu or whatever. But fantasy horror is like its own little space. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is Best Left Buried? It's a, a short role-playing game that tries to kind of depict what dungeoneering would be like if magic was real, monsters were real, and people who were adventurers were an accurate demographic of the kind of people that would go into dungeons for a living would be if that existed. Uh, It's kind of a bit silly and it kind of approaches on the sort of farcical, but I can't imagine anyone in a world where those things existed becoming an adventurer unless they were crazy, unemployed, or just desperate for money and have nothing else that you could make money from. Or just be, you know, the kind of person who goes dungeoneering for fun because caving is horrible and caving plus monsters that will eat you is really horrible. (laughs) So kind of what it does is it has a couple of moments to kind of erode characters' sanities over time and that being as much, if not more, of a resource that you have to pay attention to compared to the sort of red sack of meat HP that a lot of games tend to use as a resource. And then a lot of the others is about making monsters and dungeons genuinely scary environments because it's easier for me to make a scared player than for me to make the player's roleplay scared characters, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, by you don't just make the roleplaying thing, you target the source of the emotion and then generate it at the table. Kind of mechanics that will do that and create monsters where every monster is a boss monster is how you want it to feel you know it's not like you're wading through a horde of mooks to get to the thing at the end of the level no every monster is that in like the starting play bit of your book it says your characters are probably going to die at some point so you might need to make up a few backup characters for me when i'm playing role-playing games i tend not to have backup characters because i feel i want to be invested in that character story i don't want to be like oh this character oh but don't worry i've got my backup one i like having that not fear but like every battle could be my last yeah i find that interesting because like you automatically in the book you're saying to these people that there's a real chance of you not beating or getting out of this dungeon so be prepared for that god yeah i've got so much to talk about on this point Uh, so the (laughs) I don't know if that making three characters is really good advice uh, because I wrote it when the game was a lot more lethal, sort of back when it started. Kind of the mechanics were different enough and I wrote that paragraph nearly got a year and a half ago now. <laughs> but I've not said to any group of players who are just starting play, you should make three characters. Mm. Uh, we've usually just played one. If someone dies, then it's quick enough that you can just bash one out in like 10 minutes. That's the other thing that's quite important, quick character generation. Mm-hmm. But what you said about investment is really important and I think that true drama requires risk right and that's what we're trying to do at the the table we're not trying to tell stories we're trying to create stories right Mm -hmm. and if there's no constant concept of loss or 
consequence to players' actions, then choices aren't important. And I think adding risk, if it's of death, then that's fine. I think a lot of games sort of the old school based try to do consequence of death. And I actually think that death is often the most boring consequence to a character because it means, oh, oh my, it sucks. Having a character that dies just sucks because you're like, God, I really like that guy. As much as like that's a, a thing we want to imitate in play, I think that the, some of the stuff that happens to you in Best Left Buried is like a different kind of consequence that hurts more. So throughout play, in Best Left is going to pick up like insanities and injuries mm-hmm. and nothing hurts more to me like than playing a character who's like i'm gonna be a really good fighter and then you take a crippling arm injury which means you can't use that two-handed battle axe you really liked anymore or like having a character who is is now scared of like the dark or kobolds or something or now has alcoholism or ptsd like suddenly those consequences are so much more painful than just having that character be murdered instantly But it also means you get the chance to keep playing that character or a chance to develop that thing into like a backstory or like a plot thing. So you've kind of got different spaces and points where the risks and the consequences mean more because there are consequences that aren't just you dying. And I think that the other thing is the reason I said make three characters, is something we haven't talked about yet, is that the assumption in a game of Best Left Buried is that you're playing a party who aren't just like six people they're six people who are part of like a company of like 30 professional dungeoneers Mm -hmm. so by making this kind of extended cast of characters you can kind of really easily imagine that there's more people within this camp because they're some of your friends as well and it also means that if there's loads of extra characters someone just turns up oh you can have my spare or something like that or you know what i mean and Mm -hmm. if someone skips a session that then creates a reason for them to not be there because Mm -hmm their characters are just off doing something else because or they, you know, they're part of a different patrol or maybe they're resting or they're back at camp on watch or something. So kind of that decision to make three characters is kind of about building a supporting cast. And it means when your character dies, you're not just like, oh, we died after making a new character. You know, I'm really excited to play character number two, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's a decision. You can ignore that rule. Everything in the game is a suggestion. Of course. That's really important. I think that alternate rules and deciding what things you don't and do like in a role-playing game is like the first step to making it your own mm-hmm. because it's not just this thing that exists in a book that's like the sacred enshrined text. Mm-hmm. Like homebrewing is a tradition that is older than D&D. <laughs> D&D is a homebrew of another yeah. game. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like it being your own game is such an important tradition that if you hack Best Left Buried in any way that you can think of, I will literally clap my hands... It's not a sacred text. It's a living moment that exists so that you can play it and enjoy it at your table. So if you don't want to make three characters, don't make three characters. It's that easy. I agree with you that consequences and the likelihood of you picking up an insanity or an injury is something that's not unique to me, but it instantly catches my attention. And I'm like, why? I'm suddenly more invested in it. And actually looking at your death mechanics as well, you flip a coin and when you're reduced to no hit points and obviously yeah. do you want to talk about that <laughs> yeah so i death saves just really annoy me because it's just such an undramatic thing that it's like someone's i mean it's dramatic so it's like bleeding out counters and things i was playing a game of fifth edition i was like you know what L- i got a pocket and i flipped it i've since bought like a really heavy golden skull coin oh that nice is my, like physical game and i'm like this is the coin of death <laughs> and so if you roll a heads it's a skull you're dead if it's a tails then 
you live and you're unconscious and you sort of pick up some injuries. But it kind of creates this moment where your characters now aren't just bleeding up on the ground. They're going to wake up in D6 hours, I think the rule is. Mm -hmm. But then other monsters can say, I'm going to spend my action to finish that guy off when he's on the ground, Mm -hmm. which then creates this really intense decision of another character in the party can use their action and their movement to like stop that from happening and like defend him. It's like a heroic rescue, it's called. And it's just a terrible thing to do. And I personally, you should just never do it for any of your friends ever, unless there's a really important reason, because it's more likely to get you killed than Mm -hmm. do anything helpful. Obviously, it might, if it's like a clutch situation, it might be worth it. But kind of looking at that death mechanic, it just creates like the single most dramatic moment of any session is when the coin is just plunked on the table and then... The players all just go, ooh, it's the calling of death. <laughs> That's uh, trying to be as different as possible and like making it, because it's not like it's a game that always uses coins. It's a game that is entirely based in D6s. Mm. So you could do it, roll a D6, four, five, six, one, two, three. But like, it just means that the moment that that coin is brought out, the shit has hit the proverbial fan. And it's not like, maybe you could have it sitting on the table and just slide it into the middle. But the idea that that coin is is life and death and that's what life and death is in that game the flip the coin again i can just imagine like having something like that and just bringing it like bring it out to the table or getting one of your players to get out their wallet and to flick it like but you, <laughs> but you know what i mean like it's, it is, <laughs> yeah well it's true because it is such a death save so they, they can be quite tense but you have a certain number of times to get it right or you have a second chance so the idea of dying isn't as effective as just a simple one check you know flip the coin and you're dead the reason that that mechanic exists in fiction is because they survey people and they said, we don't like it when our characters die. That, that makes complete sense from a business perspective. You know why they did that, because who like Dungeons and Dragons, like playing Dungeons and Dragons characters, and they want to have that system where it creates these really dramatic moments. And I think I've had games with death saving throws where have been just like the most intense combats. Going. And like there's three people here, there's a guy on the ground there. And that finish off move is in the rules for D&D if you look for it. You know, just hit them on the ground and they fail two death saves, I think it is, or something. It's a good rule, but it's designed to create a certain experience, whereas the coin flip is just designed to be slam. It's landed down skulls or not skulls. Yeah, timers now, isn't it? it? And the other thing I was going to mention, again, looking through the book, is obviously the amazing sort of illustrations. I know you've had, obviously, several contributions from various different people. Certainly the first version I've got, I don't know if it's in, obviously, your deluxe version, which you're working on, but the sort of the story, four adventures going into a cave, and it's sort of, throughout the book, it's like different parts of the adventures are being shown through, obviously, some deaths in it, some not. I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit. So the artist is a really talented friend of mine, Ben Brown. Uh, all of the art in the books comes from him. Uh, you can find him at, at IllustratorBB on Twitter. If you want to check it out, just follow the main Soul Muppet Facebook page. That's where all that art goes. It's all consistent art style. He's never played role-playing games before. I went to school with a guy and he did this like ridiculous project at A-level art, which he did in his spare time while studying to go to university. He was just drawing like crazy monsters and like ants dressed in military uniforms. And I was like, you know what? This guy would do really well. Role-playing game art. We actually, in the big push for production runs, we used to go to... Like before we first released, we used to go to a cafe in Nottingham. I would do layout, which I hate doing layout. Never asked me for advice on layout uh, <laughs> while he did art. And he, he drew the same one. I was like, oh, is that that guy from there? He was like, no, it isn't. I was like, but they look really similar. You didn't know that, don't you? And then we kind of a different chapter heading being a journey through 
these four characters' lives. Mm-hmm. So the first bit is them like walking into the dungeon, and the next piece is them like fighting a monster, and the rogue gets eaten by this tentacle lake creature. And then the next one is the priest being literally crushed in the hands of this foot shark monster. And then the fighter, like, and so sort of all of the art we were trying to like, because that's what art is in role playing games, is like telling a story and projecting. But if you sort of do this thing where you put four characters on the cover of the book, you're like, oh, those guys are going to live, right? <laughs> but not in Best Left Buried. I think that throughout that book, the 55-page entry, there is a piece of art with the death of all four of those main characters. So in fact, that role-playing game session resulted in a total party kill. Mm-hmm. So the the wizard gets eaten by a rat monster. The the thief is killed by the, the lake thing that's the start of the advancements chapter. Then the fighter is eaten by a man spider, and the cleric gets crushed to death in the hand of a foot shark. Or well, that's what I call that thing. <laughs> it's, it's not a foot shark. It's a it's a giant with a shark's head. It's a really amazing piece of art. But yeah, the idea is that you can use this art in the book to tell a story about characters and speak about the kind of game that it's going to be. Because it's not just crazy monsters. It sort of plots through time these characters. And as you get to the next version of the book, the deluxe edition, which we're sort of looking to get out kind of May, June this year in time for UK Games Expo, which we're going to, there's going to be more art with those characters. And then we've got a new cast of characters who sort of run through the second half of the book Mm -hmm. with the Dungeon Master's Guide that we're essentially making and plugging into one big book. So yeah, kind of like putting the, it was an accident. I sort of made a joke about it. He was like, yeah, let's do that. And that's the great thing about having an artist who you know really well and you're good friends with because it all becomes... It's all just this crazy project where we just bat ideas off each other constantly. And even though sort of the thing existed in my head when it was just my words, it wasn't until sort of nine months in that I got the first piece of art that it was actually a game. Before that, it was just some dude writing a Google Doc. (laughs) You're currently doing a number of playtests for Best Left Buried over Discord with a range of players from different backgrounds, different levels of experience, different time zones and stuff. So what made you decide to playtest this sort of regularly online rather than doing it in person with your friends? And how has this experience been? I ran a lot of playtests with uh, the same group of people in person in the early stage of the game. Uh, That was online, but it was still like a group of people who I knew really well. But I kind of realized that I was only getting one image and what I needed to do to make the game work really well was build a community. All games need their own community. And if you are a role-playing game designer or someone who does art or anything or whatever, you need to have your own Discord server because it's the best way to find people who are interested in the same thing as you and you're going to be able to directly market to them and they're going to get nations for it. I know that sounds really shallow, but I'm now friends with so many people in that discord server who have like changed how the project exists now the guy who does all my maps now was just invited to that server randomly and we start talking one of my editors found him on there the reason i decided to play test on there is it was the best way i was going to get that sort of slice of life if i tried to put a game together by myself in nottingham where i live then i would have got like a specific type of people which would have been people from my office whereas now i can run with people from different cultures from different levels of experience who people who know more or less about RPG, you know, because like playing a lot of RPGs isn't knowing a lot about RPGs. And that sounds really silly, but a lot of people just play role-playing games sort of by themselves in a little box. Whereas some other people don't play any role-playing games, but they're completely exposed to the culture. It's kind of given me this place as well where I can now post something I've written and say, what do you guys think of this? And then it's immediately refined on by 10 people. 
not only did those people get to see cool stuff as working on it, and it goes there before it goes on Twitter or Facebook or anything, they get to be part of the design process. And about five or six people from that Discord now have their names in BSF buried. If that's because they've done editing or because they've just provided me really good feedback, which makes me want to give them appreciation, mm. then that's how it is. And I think that Discord is where role-playing games are going to be in time. And I think that social media with G plus dying, which is a big thing for my bit, the community, a lot of that's going to now move over to Discord and Twitter, places like that. Yeah, I just want to do it online because also I can I can kind of do that West Marches thing. So a West March game is instead of we have a game night on a Thursday, it is I'm running a game at this place at this time. Who wants to play? Or more accurately, it's meant to be players pitch the dungeon masters and there's a pool of dungeon masters about when a certain group of characters will go out. And in my mind, that's what the core Best Left Buried experience is. Mm. Kind of like a quite large group of players joining in when you want maybe a club of like 15 people. And then you run a couple of games a week with like different dungeon masters and stuff. That's how I think the game could be enjoyed at its highest form. That Discord is a really good change. And a lot of those people are not only my friends, but also people who endlessly promote my work, who I met through that server. And it's just open invite. If you want to get on then drop me a tweet or something or you know message Fiona and she's on there. <laughs> well, it's a really good place to not only make things, but meet people, play games, and just generally witness all the cool stuff going on in RPGs right now. So I hadn't heard of the West Marches campaign before until you told me about it. And it makes mm. complete sense. If it was a face-to-face thing, like not everyone is free all the time and sometimes you need everyone to be there. Whereas this sort of game lends itself quite easily to this sort of style where a group of ventures are part of a bigger company. Yeah, it makes sense that so-and-so who was there last week might not be here because they're on a different thing. I like that mm-hmm. so much because it means that, like for me, I've only played in one of your playtests so far just because of timing and stuff, but I, I felt... I hadn't missed anything per se, but, you know, obviously hearing tales of like what happened in the previous session and be like, right, now it's our session. We get to do our own thing with little bits of tidbit from the other session. And it sort of goes through. I mean, how have you found that as a games master running these things? Because obviously you must have the dungeon or the adventure in total in your head. And if one group goes in and explores one part and then how is that when you are preparing that sort of thing? Like, do you prepare Uh, like a whole dungeon or do you just bits and pieces for each one that goes along? The Crypt in Best Left Buried, which is my, the silliest, I just, it was like, I can't call it a dungeon. I love it though. I think Crypt, crypt is ex, it's a, such a good word. Yeah. yeah, so I build Crypts uh, wholesale top down. So I have played in that sort of longer playtesting game. I've used one dungeon I wrote myself, one dungeon that was like literally one page off internet, and another dungeon called Deep Carbon Observatory, which is written by Patrick Stewart, who I talked about earlier. You've got to consume it and understand it all the way through. And I think that's, I think when you play a game that is exclusively about dungeoneering and mega dungeons, which is what Best Left Buried is, a mega dungeon in this situation being like a really large multi level dungeon complex rather than just like a dungeon with five rooms in it. It's quite important to have a mastery of the kind of places your players might get to. Dungeon Master, we call that for a reason because it was called that back in the day because everybody used to have their own dungeon. You know, Gary Gygax had like Castle Greyhawk. Arneson had, I can't remember what it's called, but it's like something Blackmore. It, it, it's really hard at sometimes, like, remember different groups haven't, haven't explored and, like, having to go back and explain something mm-hmm. because you kind of assume that before Party 2 goes into the dungeon, someone from Party 1 will have gone, well, this thing was here, this thing was here, here's a little sketcher on a map. Mm-hmm. Watch out for, like, the cat things in there, and if you see them off there, run. So that kind of has to be filtered into it. 
you can do it with like they explore different sections of the dungeon but i found that it's been a really good experience like running that kind of west marches style game in a mega dungeon because that's what it's meant to be for a hex crawl so like lots of different locations you say look we'll go to the dark tower today and then we'll go to those catacombs with the kobolds there go to the swamp where we think that hag is there we'll try to talk to her that's how it used to be but now it's like which bit of the dungeon are we going to explore mm. and i think that if you've never played a west marches game before and you're one of those groups of people that's like oh i can never schedule DD or my friends are so busy just need to play a west marches game because mm. you don't have to have a fixed night every week you have a bit of a larger party you kind of jump from about five regular players to maybe 10 and then if a third of those people can make it and if you just don't run the session, if no one can make it, yeah. that's that's the rule. So I think that you want to look into it. It doesn't have to be West Marches with the kind of the classical stuff because the West Marches is a location from someone's campaign world. That's why it's called that. Mm-hmm. can't remember the name of the guy. You'll be able to find it if you Google it. But I think it's a really interesting way to play games if you are one of those people who has a scheduling problem. And you should also play that game with Best Left there. <laughs> the bits of the dungeon that you can create or think about can be so vastly different. Could be a different climate, could be different dangers and stuff, but it's all contained. And so you don't have to have the issue perhaps of like travel time or downtime where you might have to do something. So I, I think that's what I quite like about yeah. that. Mega dungeon play is a really easy thing to prove because you basically need a dungeon and the stuff that happens in it. You don't need to worry about what the random counters is going to be. If you actually think about the number of adventuring possibilities within a city your brain will just explode. Nobody preps a city, mm-hmm. right? In the same detail that you prep a dungeon or prep an overland encounter in the same wilderness. It all goes down to like random tables or what happens in it, or it becomes a very sort of structured city crawl. But if it goes off topic in a city crawl, then you are with the wolves for improvising. Mm-hmm. You've just got to come up with stuff immediately. Whereas the dungeon creates by the nature of the fact that it is a dungeon, it is this isolated environment, which means that it's actually a really easy thing to DM because when you're running it, you just need the dungeon and maybe the odd thing to happen back at camp. When you're just running the game, you just need a dungeon mm. and or the crypt. Mm. I, I keep saying dungeon, the crypt. <laughs> it's fine. There's I've like been saying dungeon as well. Lots <laughs> of stuff about building the crypt and what's in it. A couple of people who like got the game quite early on like messaged me like, in the deluxe version, you need to tell us more about this crypt. Like, is it because is it like some kind of like underworld mega dungeon that spans the entire world and is like sort of like the arc? And I was like, no, it wasn't, but it is now. <laughs> sort of, you know, adapting to sort of what that is and what it means and how things work down there. Really interesting space to live in. Like, you can do so much of dungeon. I'm like, I I love dungeon play. The best campaigns I've ran have been like really prep heavy role-playing heavy city campaigns but it just takes so much work mm. whereas for a dungeon all you need is a dungeon as we said spoken about you've run several playtests each week and you were saying that west marches you could have you know whoever's free could be up to five six maybe even down mm. to one and you said obviously cancel if no one turns up i was wondering like have you ever had just a one-on-one session at all I ran a session for two on the Discord. I tend to do groups of three is mm-hmm. like my cutoff, but we were waiting for a third person who never showed up. Mm. So I ran that for two. But equally, I think that if you were going to run something scary in a dungeon, then you probably want to run a hot... Because like if there's one person, then suddenly that's a whole lot more scary because you don't have friends. Definitely. <laughs> now I want to do that. Now I just want to run a one-person uh, RPG session. 
I don't know how it would work with with it just being a one-on-one with best left buried. I would just be at every turn I'll be like oh my god I'm gonna fail all my observation checks it's always gonna be against the odds because it's just me <laughs> I think there's going back to that there was another one I forgot I think it's called 12 candles or something so you oh 10 candles like, I've read 10 that candles. Yeah. yeah so you've got like the candles which are how long your character lives for and when the candle you each like have a candle or something and when it snuffs out your character dies and I was like that's like such a cool idea but mm. and you play in like a dark room and obviously it gets increasingly dark and this is one person and everyone else is watching and like there's so many like it just works and like playing horror games in the dark is like watching a horror movie in the dark mm. just better yeah there's lots of like really cool alternative stuff with sort of like drawing cards from a deck or playing jenga or you know candles but i don't think anyone's done like a straight up horror dice game it's mm. a big throwback when we were talking about death before and how in RPG games, death isn't seen as the end per se, or maybe a mild inconvenience uh, to some adventurers. And maybe this is a bit too deep for the podcast, but I always think that people don't really know the sort of the true meaning of death until maybe they experience it themselves, whether it's a, a loved one or being involved in something quite dramatic. And whilst I know role-playing games are supposed to take us away from a different world, I think there is something in facing it or facing situations where there's a real chance of death and like acknowledging it if you know what i mean like that's sort of like yeah. um death is such an an important aspect of your rpg that i don't think many other people think about perhaps i don't mean in sort of like i think that, that the culture we have at the moment desensitizes us to death and violence mm. until you experience it it's always very either very loud and very explosive and it's an action movie or it's sort of very subdued and very sad by it it's like a medium that just isn't explored too well in games because like it is again often the most boring consequence mm. and it's something that players don't like it happen to them and so this is a thing i've said to dungeon masters explicitly it's not your job to kill the players it's your job to bring them to the near point of death everyone gets an adrenaline rush a game where it's a real risk and that risk creates drama is more interesting than action movies mm-hmm. you know having that space where it, it's something that could happen to the characters and a lot of games and a lot of films and a lot of books it only happens when it's dramatically appropriate. And I think RPGs try to do that quite a lot. Whereas in life, death happens at the strangest and most random of times. I think having that as an option that can happen to you in a game is something really compelling. I mean, I don't know what it is like in obviously your deluxe edition, but there's no say like, well, you're dead. There's no resurrection. There's no nothing, you know. There's resurrection now. Oh, I see. As a, as a, in that, so the characters are built with advancements, basically like small one paragraph abilities, kind of like keywords or something that usually have some cool flavor text within the given ability. For low level characters, they're sort of like, you can cast Firebolt or, you know, you have more chances of running away from things or whatever. But one of the things we do is that once you reach a certain number of advancements, schooled into a certain class in inverted commas, you unlock the sort of kind of prestige class thing. And that's the point where your advancements aren't fire bolt anymore, they're fireball. The clerics have this amazing spell, which is my favorite one in the whole book, called Flesh Made Anew. There's a small chance of the of the cleric or the godsman, which is my silly dramatic term that I love using for clerics, <laughs> has a chance of like taking on that injury. So if you cure one of your allies, that could be enacted upon to you by the miracle that you have created. Oh, wow. And you can also use it to restore dead characters as if they had been unconscious. 
but oh, you know God. if you roll that thing to you your cleric could like lazarus some guy from the grave but then just immediately be stricken by death so it's like a a really dramatic thing that probably is going to see play in like five to ten percent of games if that's quite high sure, level but sure. when you get to some of those high level advancements there's just some really cool ones in there the shadow jack which is the word i use for rogue mm-hmm. has one called i am the knight which is if there is a feasible chance that you could not be noticed by a monster in this situation you are actively trying to avoid detection any like observation checks made against you are impossible oh nice so, if you are trying to sneak, then you're never going to be seen if there's any feasible ground to do so. The other great one is called Call of the Faithful. And it's uh, you basically, when you're creating it, you build a random creature, like a monster, that is a servant of your deity. Mm. So it might be like an angel or a demon or some kind of undead or fae, elemental creature, whatever. And then you use a sermon to the battlefield, at which point you then have to negotiate with this creature some terms of a pact or something so you basically <laughs> really deal with this demon you're summoning it to the battlefield and you're sort of making checks to try and convince it to it's like sort of summoning demons but there's mm. no mechanical differentiation between summoning like a devil and summoning an archangel mm. because both those things in a world where the monsters are as horrible as best left buried should be really crazy and evil the fighter has a move that's called crushing blow or something you spend some grip and a monster like automatically rolls an injury uh, which is sort of a critical hit basically so you impose the consequence of critical hit on your opponent but if you spend slightly more grip you can do that move and then also force all the monsters in the same zone as it to like make a grip check which is like a sort of fear check so the idea that your character just smacks this guy so hard that all the monsters around it are just like shit son (laughs) and they're all panicking and that sort of thing and so it just makes these really awesome moments and the idea is that it's trying to make your fighter feel as absolutely badass as possible Mm -hmm. in that moment where he just chops the I don't know, like an ogre's arm clean off and then the orcs around it just like lose their minds and just run, run. just completely stunned. Mm. And then the final one is the, my favourite one in the whole book is just called Impossible and it's another rogue one, so for the Shadow Jacks and it's if you declare something that your rogue does that defies the odds and then the dungeon master says back a cost in grip, so how much of your sanity slash mana slash stammer it's going to take you and then you can just take it if they say yeah you can you know break the manacles and appear on the balcony laughing like a maniac <laughs> then that's going to cost you six points or you know oh i had the keys with me the whole time yeah basically it's the ultimate i prepped this earlier card yeah, yeah so yeah. you know just like these tools to make characters who like aren't really powerful but can just do cool shit so what do you think are the best ingredients for a good adventure using Best Left Buried? It's just got to be the monsters, man. It's got to be the monsters. Dungeons are cool, but monsters take the cake every time. There's a couple of like ingredients of things you can sort of like explicitly outline this. The crypt needs to be dangerous. It needs to be isolated. It kind of needs to be a box, a defined space, and then it needs to have treasure in it. If you have those four things and you think about those four things... And you can't go wrong. I think that immersion is a really important thing. I think that having the answers to the questions about the dungeon, even if you don't share them with the players, is really important. There's sort of a lot of emphasis to me on why is this thing here? Because when you think about a dungeon, it's usually something someone has built. 
unless it's a cave, but normally it's like a built structure underground. You've got to think about why it was there, what it was doing, what happened to it to ruin it, because dungeons are also ruined. And then kind of thinking about ecosystems and stuff is really important to me. It's just the kind of act that I enjoy doing, just making stuff up about places underground. But yeah, I think the actual answer to that question is just you've got to have a really cool monster. And I think that there's definitely places to get good monsters if you can't think of them. I would point you towards any Patrick Stewart book. Fire on the Velvet Horizon and Veins of the Earth are the two best D&D monster books I've ever come across. Equally, make your own. And it's got to be something that isn't just from the standard pantheon. Because I think that after you've killed like a couple of hundred goblins those stop becoming scary anymore. So I think having a, a custom bespoke monster is really important. And I think that one of my favorite things about the monsters is that I don't name them when I'm making them. Mm-hmm. I let the players name them. It's something I talk about quite a lot because when it has a name, it's a defined quantity. And I think the mystery of a monster is a really important thing in a horror game. What do you think it takes to be a good Best Left Buried player? I think it takes what it takes to be in any role-playing game. You're coming there to have fun, pay your attention, put your phone away, try to win. <laughs> I know that sounds really silly. <laughs> but uh, if you don't try to win in Best of Bray, the monsters will kill you. I think that willingness to accept consequence is really important. I think that while you're encouraged to take low risks, people who take no risks at all, it's kind of become quite boring. As much as it is a game about fighting monsters, it's more a game about playing characters. And I think that just because it's not a game where you're talking to loads of NPCs and having a big character arc, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't do that. I think it's really important to, this is my favorite piece of advice ever, is discover your character through play. I would not recommend coming into a Best of Buried game after writing a 10-page backstory because... For starters, I'm not going to read it if you're playing with me because <laughs> I don't have time to read that. Mm. Uh, no offense to anybody who enjoys writing that kind of thing. I, <laughs> The first D&D character I ever made is now the protagonist of a novel I wrote. So I'm certainly <laughs> guilty of that act. Yeah, discovering characters through play can be so much of a more interesting approach. But yeah, those are my main tips. Pay attention. Be prepared to have fun. Don't prep loads and don't cry if your character dies. <laughs> What are your favourite RPGs to run or read? What is it for you that they get right? So my favourite role-playing game is Maze Rats. That taught me so many lessons about running the game and it's like my go-to one-shot machine. If I'm teaching new players, we run a game of Maze Rats and then we graduate to Best Left Barrier because it kind of uses the same system. I read a lot of Ben's work when I was just getting started on that. Other games I'm really enjoying. Blades in the Dark is incredible. If you haven't played Blades in the Dark, I would really recommend you do. It's kind of a fantasy gloom punk heist game, but it's written like a bullet to carve that feeling of being like the main character from Dishonored. I love reading that book. It's quite hard to run because it's very different. Like Story games as a genre are quite different from the kind of games I'm used to run. It's not the kind of thing that has loads of death. It's not the kind of thing that's dungeoneering. It's very social. It's very heisty. It's very planny. But it's got so many mechanics that are designed to carve feeling. And I think that we don't write games to make feelings anymore. We write games to tell stories. And I think that it's easy to create a, a story of a feeling, the feeling of a story. Those two. Those Maze two. Rats and uh, Blazing the Dark. What would be your sort of free top tips for any sort of game developer who's interested in creating their own RPG? I think the first piece of advice I would give is read loads of games, do games, think about games, play games. It doesn't matter if it's a role-playing game. You can play video games, you can play board games, you can play like, war games. War games have really good structure. 
to minimize page flipping and stuff like that look at layout so many games start with this idea that you have to build 500 page source book to run a game you need like four pages to run a game make loads of things make a network of people who want to play it with you work out what you think you need then half it and half it again that was something someone told me yesterday that was really smart a guy called jack who works at a company called river horse games and then basically you want to build the game as you play test you need like the roughest minimal model that does what you want you need to play test that play test it play test it again yeah i think you find what the game is through playing it more than you do through writing it so what are your plans for best left buried in the future and do you have any projects in the works we currently have the only edition of the game is on sale is the 55 page book crypt diggers guide to survival the deluxe edition is currently written and being edited and being layouted by me badly i say badly it's going quite well actually i'm really proud of it and then that game is going to be released at uk games expo which we are appearing at in the last week of may we have a kickstarter that we are making for like a one-page dungeon project so a piece of art some monster stats and then a map with the rooms directly on it descriptions of the rooms on top of a map we will be making a smaller version of the sort of the doomsayers guide to madness which will be the stuff from the deluxe edition that isn't in the core rules is going to be sort of like A plus B equals C. Mm-hmm. And the C is going to be in hardback. The deluxe edition is going to be a really nice book with gloss printed. In terms of uh, non-Best Left Buried stuff for Soul Muppet, me and Sash, who's my business partner slash partner, wrote a monster zine last year called The Weird of the Woad, which is really cool. And uh, we're making a one right now that's themed around deep sea monsters and how you can seed deep sea adventures into your D&D campaign. Mm. Kind of looking at doing some really intense description and lots of cool art. Sash is also writing a book, a guide to the creation of wizards, like a random character generation for wizards mm-hmm. with lots of, sort of like cool ideas and plot hooks and things. And then the final project that I'm working on is my baby, which is what I want to do with the Best Left Buried engine next. It's tentatively titled Once Upon a Time in the Wastes, and the idea is to use the horror engine from Best Left Buried, kind of take the D6 dice advancement stats grip thing to make a Mad Max slash Fallout slash Sergio Leone spaghetti western game. So that's like my goal to finish by the end of the year. Where can we find your work and follow your exploits? We have a Facebook, which is uh, facebook.com slash soulmuppet. You can find us at Soul Muppet Publishing. That's like the company page. My personal Twitter is the main place that I do social media, is uh, at Jelly Muppet. We've got a Discord server, which is all the funky fresh happenings are going to appear before they go on social media. Sort of like the pipeline where you can see all of our stuff in progress, where everything gets announced first. There's free content up there. Loads of stuff. Uh, you can find links to that on my Twitter bio facebook page sash you want to follow sash she is a uh, at hey sash with two y's and then the artist for best left buried ben is uh, at illustrator bb and best left buried is available now on drive for rpg brilliant i think that's everything i think thank that's you. everything too no thank you so much zach it was great to talk to you i'm hoping to do more of these special q a bonus episodes in future including q a's on the one shots we've run here at what am i rolling If you have a question you would like to send in, or a submission for help, my fictional RPG character is having difficulties, please send them along to our email address. That's whatamirollingpodcast at gmail.com. And that's it. Great. See you next time.
Thank you.